Section 6 of Chapter 21 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 21, Section 6. Villeroy had, in the meantime, made some petty conquests. Dixmoyd, which might have offered some resistance, had opened its gates to him, not without grave suspicion of treachery on the part of the governor. Deintz, which was less able to make any defence, had followed the example. The garrisons of both towns were, in violation of a convention which had been made for the exchange of prisoners, sent into France. The marshal then advanced towards Brussels, in the hope that, as it should seem, that by menacing that beautiful capital, he might induce the allies to raise the siege of the castle of Namur. During thirty-six hours he rained shells and red-hot bullets on the city. The electress of Bavaria, who was within the walls, miscarried from terror. Six convents perished, fifteen hundred houses were at once in flames. The whole lower town would have been burned to the ground, had not the inhabitants stopped the conflagration by blowing up numerous buildings. Immense quantities of the finest lace and tapestry were destroyed, for the industry and trade which makes Brussels famous throughout the world had hitherto been little affected by the war. Several of the stately piles which looked down on the market-place were laid in ruins. The town hall itself, the noblest of the many noble senate houses, reared by the burghers of the Netherlands, was in imminent peril. All this devastation, however, produced no effect except much private misery. William was not to be intimidated or provoked into relaxing the firm grasp with which he held Namur. The fire which his batteries kept up round the castle was such as had never been known in war. The French gunners were fairly driven from their pieces by the hail of balls, and forced to take refuge in vaulted galleries under the ground. Cohorn exultingly betted the elector of Bavaria four hundred pistoles that the place would fall before the thirty-first of August. New style. The great engineer lost his wager indeed, but lost it only by a few hours. Boufflers now began to feel that his only hope was in Villeroy. Villeroy had proceeded from Brussels to Enkhine. He had there collected all the French troops that could be spared from the remotest fortresses of the Netherlands, and he now, at the head of more than eighty thousand men, marched towards Namur. Vaudemont, meanwhile, joined the besiegers. William, therefore, thought himself strong enough to offer battle to Villeroy without intermitting for a moment the operations against Boufflers. 
the elector of bavaria was entrusted with the immediate direction of the siege the king of england took up on the west of the town a strong position strongly entrenched and there awaited the french who were advancing from Enghein. everything seemed to indicate that a great day was at hand two of the most numerous and best ordered armies that europe had ever seen were brought face to face on the fifteenth of august the defenders of the castle saw from their watch-towers the mighty host of their countrymen but between that host and the citadel was drawn up in battle order the not less mighty host of william villeroy by a salute of ninety guns conveyed to boufflers the promise of a speedy rescue and at night boufflers by fire signals which were seen far over the vast plain of the meuse and sombre urged villeroy to fulfil that promise without delay in the capitals both of france and england the anxiety was intense lewis shut himself up in his oratory confessed received the eucharist and gave orders that the host should be exposed in his chapel his wife ordered all her nuns to their knees london was kept in a state of distraction by a succession of rumours fabricated some by jacobites and some by stock-jobbers early one morning it was confidently averred that there had been a battle that the allies had been beaten that the king had been killed that the siege had been raised the exchange as soon as it was opened was filled to overflowing by people who came to learn whether the bad news was true the streets were stopped up all day by groups of talkers and listeners in the afternoon the gazette which had been impatiently expected and which was eagerly read by thousands calmed the excitement but not completely for it was known that the jacobites sometimes received by the agency of privateers and smugglers who put to sea in all weathers intelligence earlier than that which came through regular channels to the secretary of state at whitehall before night however the agitation had altogether subsided but it was suddenly revived by a bold imposture a horseman in the uniform of the guards spurred through the city announcing that the king had been killed he would probably have raised a serious tumult had not some apprentices zealous for the revolution and the protestant religion knocked him down and carried him to newgate the confidential correspondent of the states-general informed that in spite of all the stories which the disaffected party invented and circulated the general persuasion was that the allies would be successful a touchstone of sincerity in england he said was the betting the jacobites were ready enough to prove that william must be defeated or to assert that he had been defeated but they would not give the odds and could hardly be induced to take any moderate odds the whigs on the other hand 
were ready to stake thousands of guineas on the conduct and good fortune of the king. The event justified the confidence of the Whigs and the backwardness of the Jacobites. On the 16th, the 17th, and the 18th of August, the army of Villeroy and the army of William confronted each other. It was fully expected that the 19th would be the decisive day. The Allies were under arms before dawn. At four, William mounted and continued till eight at night to ride from post to post, disposing his own troops and watching the movements of the enemy. The enemy approached his lines in several places, near enough to see that it would not be easy to dislodge him, but there was no fighting. He lay down to rest, expecting to be attacked when the sun rose. But when the sun rose, he found that the French had fallen back some miles. He immediately sent to request that the elector would storm the castle without delay. While the preparations were making, Portland was sent to summon the garrison for the last time. It was plain, he said to Boufflers, that Villeroy had given up all hope of being able to raise the siege. It would therefore be a useless waste of life to prolong the contest. Boufflers, however, thought that another day of slaughter was necessary to the honour of the French arms, and Portland returned unsuccessful. Early in the afternoon, the assault was made in four places at once, by four divisions of the Confederate army. One point was assigned to the Brandenburgers, another to the Dutch, a third to the Bavarians, and a fourth to the English. The English were at first less fortunate than they had hitherto been. The truth is that most of the regiments which had seen service had marched with William to encounter Villeroy. As soon as the signal was given by the blowing up of two barrels of powder, Cutts, at the head of a small body of grenadiers, marched first out of the trenches with drums beating and colours flying. This gallant band was to be supported by four battalions, which had never been in action, and which, though full of spirit, wanted the steadiness which so terrible a service required. The officers fell fast. Every colonel, every lieutenant-colonel, was killed or severely wounded. Cutts received a shot in the head, which for a time disabled him. The raw recruits, left almost without direction, rushed forward impetuously till they found themselves in disorder and out of breath, with a precipice before them, under a terrible fire, and under a shower less terrible of fragments of rock and wall. They lost heart, and rolled back in confusion, till Cutts, whose wound had by this time been dressed, succeeded in rallying them. He then led them, not to the place from which they had been driven back, but to another spot where a fearful battle was raging. The Bavarians had made their onset gallantly, but unsuccessfully. Their general had fallen, and they were beginning to waver when the arrival of the salamander and his men changed the fate of the day. Two hundred English volunteers, bent on retrieving at all hazards, 
the disgrace of the recent repulse, were the first to force a way, sword in hand, through the palisades, to storm a battery which had made great havoc among the Bavarians, and to turn the guns against the garrison. Meanwhile the Brandenburgers, excellently disciplined and excellently commanded, had performed with no great loss the duty assigned to them. The Dutch had been equally successful. When the evening closed in, the Allies had made a lodgment of a mile in extent on the outworks of the castle. The advantage had been purchased by the loss of two thousand men. And now Boufflers thought that he had done all that his duty required. On the morrow he asked for a truce of forty-eight hours, in order that the hundreds of corpses which choked the ditches, and which would have soon spread pestilence among both the besiegers and the besieged, might be removed and interred. His request was granted, and before the time expired he intimated that he was disposed to capitulate. He would, he said, deliver up the castle in ten days, if he were not relieved sooner. He was informed that the Allies would not treat with him on such terms, and that he must either consent to an immediate surrender, or prepare for an immediate assault. He yielded, and it was agreed that he and his men should be suffered to depart, leaving the citadel, the artillery, and the stores to the conquerors. Three peals from all the guns of the Confederate army notified to Villeroy the fall of the stronghold which he had vainly attempted to succor. He instantly retreated towards Mons, leaving William to enjoy undisturbed a triumph which was made more delightful by the recollection of many misfortunes. The 26th of August was fixed for an exhibition such as the oldest soldier in Europe had never seen, and such as, a few weeks before, the youngest had scarcely hoped to see. From the first battle of Conde to the last battle of Luxembourg, the tide of military success had run, without any serious interruption, in one direction. That tide had turned. For the first time, men said, since France had marshals, a marshal of France was to deliver up a fortress to a victorious enemy. The Allied forces, foot and horse, drawn up in two lines, formed a magnificent avenue from the breach which had lately been so desperately contested to the bank of the Meuse. The Elector of Bavaria, the Landgrave of Hesse, and many distinguished officers were on horseback in the vicinity of the castle. William was near them in his coach. The garrison, reduced to about five thousand men, came forth with drums beating and ensigns flying. Boufflers and his staff closed the procession. There had been some difficulty about the form of the greeting which was to be exchanged between him and the allied sovereigns. An elector of Bavaria was hardly entitled to be saluted by the marshal with the sword. A king of England was undoubtedly entitled to such a mark of respect. But France did not recognize William as king of England.
At last Boufflers consented to perform the salute, without marking for which of the two princes it was intended. He lowered his sword. William alone acknowledged the compliment. A short conversation followed. The marshal, in order to avoid the use of the words sire and majesty, addressed himself only to the elector. The elector, with every mark of deference, reported to William what had been said, and William gravely touched his hat. The officers of the garrison carried back to their country the news that the upstart who at Paris was designated only as Prince of Orange, was treated by the proudest potentates of the Germanic body with a respect as profound as that which Lewis exacted from the gentlemen of his bedchamber. The ceremonial was now over, and Boufflers passed on, but he had proceeded but a short way when he was stopped by Dieckvelt, who accompanied the Allied army as deputy from the States-General. "'You must return to the town, sir,' said Dieckvelt. "'The King of England has informed me to inform you that you are his prisoner.' Boufflers was in transports of rage. His officers crowded round him and vowed to die in his defence. But resistance was out of the question. A strong body of Dutch cavalry came up, and the brigadier who commanded them demanded the marshal's sword. The marshal uttered indignant exclamations. This is an infamous breach of faith. Look at the terms of the capitulation. What have I done to deserve such an affront? Have I not behaved like a man of honour? Ought I not to be treated as such? But beware what you do, gentlemen. I serve a master who can and will avenge me. I am a soldier, sir, answered the brigadier, and my business is to obey orders without troubling myself about consequences. Dickvelt calmly and courteously replied to the marshal's indignant exclamations. The King of England has reluctantly followed the example set by your master. The soldiers who garrisoned Dixmoyd and Deintz have in defiance of plighted faith been sent prisoners into France. The prince whom they serve would be wanting in his duty to them if he did not retaliate. His Majesty might with perfect justice have detained all the French who were in Namur, but he will not follow to such a length a precedent which he disapproves. He has determined to arrest you and you alone, and, sir, you must not regard as an affront what is in truth a mark of his very particular esteem. How can he pay you a higher compliment than by showing that he considers you as fully equivalent to the five or six thousand men whom your sovereign wrongfully holds in captivity? Nay, you shall even now be permitted to proceed if you will give me your word of honour to return hither unless the garrisons of Dixmoyd and Dines are released within a fortnight. I do not at all know, answered Boufflers, 
why the king my master detains these men, and therefore I cannot hold out any hope that he will liberate them. You have an army at your back. I am alone, and you must do your pleasure. He gave up his sword, returned to Namur, and was sent thence to Hoy, where he passed a few days in luxurious repose, was allowed to choose his own walks and rides, and was treated with marked respect by those who guarded him. In the shortest time in which it was possible to post from the place where he was confined to the French court and back again, he received full powers to promise that the garrisons of Dixmoyd and Deintz should be sent back. He was instantly liberated, and he set off for Fontainebleau, where an honourable reception awaited him. He was created a duke and a peer. That he might be able to support his new dignities, a considerable sum of money was bestowed on him, and in the presence of the whole aristocracy of France, he was welcomed home by Louis with an affectionate embrace. In all the countries which were united against France, the news of the fall of Namur was received with joy, but here the exultation was greatest. During several generations our ancestors had achieved nothing considerable by land against foreign enemies. We had indeed occasionally furnished to our allies small bands of auxiliaries who had well maintained the honour of the nation, but from the day on which the two brave Talbots, father and son, had perished in the vain attempt to reconquer Gwen, till the revolution there had been on the continent no campaign in which Englishmen had borne a principal part. At length our ancestors had again, after an interval of near two centuries and a half, begun to dispute with the warriors of France the palm of military prowess. The struggle had been hard. The genius of Luxembourg and the consummate discipline of the household troops of Louis had prevailed in two great battles, but the event of those battles had been long doubtful. The victory had been dearly purchased, and the victor had gained little more than the honour of remaining master of the field of slaughter. Meanwhile, he was himself training his adversaries. The recruits who survived his severe tuition speedily became veterans. Steinkirk and Landon had formed the volunteers who followed cuts through the palisades of Namur. The judgment of all the great warriors whom the nations of Western Europe had sent to the confluence of the Sambre and the Meuse was that the English subaltern was inferior to no subaltern and the English private soldier to no private soldier in Christendom. The English officers of higher rank were thought hardly worthy to command such an army. Cuts, indeed, had distinguished himself by his intrepidity, but those who most admire him acknowledged that he had neither the capacity nor the science necessary to a general. The joy of the conquerors 
was heightened by the recollection of the discomfiture which they had suffered three years before on the same spot, and of the insolence with which their enemy had then triumphed over them. They now triumphed in their turn. The Dutch struck medals, the Spaniards sang te deums, many poems, serious and sportive, appeared, of which only one has lived. Prior burlesqued, with admirable spirit and pleasantry, the bombastic verses in which Boileau had celebrated the first taking of Namur. The two odes, printed side by side, were read with delight in London, and the critics at Wills pronounced that in wit as in arms England had been victorious. The fall of Namur was the great military event of this year. The Turkish war still kept a large part of the forces of the Emperor employed in indecisive operations on the Danube. Nothing deserving to be mentioned took place either in Piedmont or on the Rhine. In Catalonia the Spaniards obtained some slight advantages, advantages due to their English and Dutch allies, who seem to have done all that could be done to help a nation never much disposed to help itself. The maritime superiority of England and Holland was now fully established. During the whole year Russell was the undisputed master of the Mediterranean. Passed and repassed between Spain and Italy, bombarded Palamos, spread terror along the whole shore of Provence, and kept the French fleet imprisoned in the harbour of Toulon. Meanwhile, Barclay was the undisputed master of the Channel, sailed to and fro in sight of the coasts of Artois, Picardy, Normandy, and Brittany, through shells into Saint-Malo, Calais, and Dunkirk, and burned Granville to the ground. The navy of Lewis, which five years before had been the most formidable in Europe, which had ranged the British seas unopposed from the Downs to the Land's End, which had anchored in Torbay and had laid Tynmouth in ashes, now gave no sign of existence except by pillaging merchantmen which were unprovided with convoy. In this lucrative war the French privateers were, towards the close of the summer, very successful. Several vessels laden with sugar from Barbados were captured. The losses of the unfortunate East India Company, already surrounded by difficulties and impoverished by boundless prodigality and corruption, were enormous. Five large ships returning from the eastern seas, with cargoes of which the value was popularly estimated at a million, fell into the hands of the enemy. These misfortunes produced some murmuring on the royal exchange, but on the whole the temper of the capital and of the nation was better than it had been during some years. Meanwhile, events which no preceding historian has condescended to mention, but which were of far greater importance than the achievements of William's army or of Russell's fleet, were taking place in London. A great experiment was making. A great revolution was in progress, 
newspapers had made their appearance. End of section 6